Joan Sutherland spoke on the Lankavatara Sutra at the Equinox Retreat in 2012. This is part one. We're going to be working with a very, very, very old sutra and um, a modern haiku poet. And I'll say why those two are um, keeping company with us this weekend. The, the sutra is the Lankavatara Sutra. And um, if you haven't <clears throat> heard of it, don't worry. Most people haven't anymore. It was, um, it was a, a sutra written in Sanskrit, came into China. And it was, it was the sutra that, that Bodhidharma, who's the first ancestor of Chan in China, handed down to his Dharma heirs, and they handed down to theirs for a few generations. And it's considered um, challenging and difficult, a little bit um, obscure in places. Um, and because of that, because it was such a dense and also such a radical teaching, and we'll talk some more about the radical nature of the, of the teaching, uh, it worked really well in the beginning of Chan when small groups of people would get together and they could really chew on it together, kind of like this. <laughs> and as Chan became much more popular, they had to look for easier to teach to large groups sutras, sutras that were easier to, to convey to large groups of people without this, this chance to kind of really chew on it together. Um, so it's gone into a kind of um, relative obscurity, at, at least in the West. But um, the, the scholar and translator Red Pine has just put out a new translation of the Lankavatara Sutra, which... For anybody who's crazy enough to attempt to read it, I really recommend. Um, the, uh, Red Pine is a, is, is a scholar and a translator and a person I, I appreciate and admire tremendously. And he's done a beautiful, very clear translation with lots of helpful notes. And so to, to sort of honor that, um, re, the reemergence of the sutra into the world, we're going to take a look at that. And... Um, the, the radical nature of the, um, of the teaching f f was certainly for that time and place. It was, it was quite something different. But as I've been rereading it, reading Red Pine's translation, I've been thinking how incredibly exactly what we're doing right now it is, how, how incredibly it speaks to so many of our of our contemporary concerns in a, in a very contemporary kind of way. So here are the, the, the basic ideas of the sutra. And again, I'll spend some good time tomorrow morning um, kind of fleshing this out a little bit. But the, the idea begins with um, everything in the world is mind and your mind in particular, but it's not you create your own reality. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that in our natural state, in our natural condition, um, our heart minds are continuous with the world. It's not a matter of subject and object or observer and observed. It's a, it's a one thing. And that's our natural state and... Um, could be our it is our natural way of experiencing things, but what happens is that we 
um, we throw projections into the world. And then we think the projections are real. And so what we're really having a relationship with is our projections and not with the world as it is. So there's, so, um, there's this, um, this quality of, here's this, here's this natural state which is so beautiful to me of the identity, the unity of heart, mind, and world which gets distorted by all these projections we're lobbing into the world and are taking those projections as being what's actually true. And then the sutra says there's a way to drop those projections, to let them fall away and not to arise anymore, and so that we can be in that natural state of where we see the unity of our interior experience of the heart-mind and our and the um, exterior experience of the world, and then the last um, the, the last thing that the the sutra says, which was at the time quite radical, this state of projectionlessness, as it calls it, which is tranquility, which is um, awakening. We have to experience it for ourselves. It's not enough to f- philosophically understand it or to think about it. We, have, we must experience projectionlessness <laughs> and the open space that that, that that opens up. And the sutra talks about um, ways to go about doing that. But it's, this is such a big thing. You know, this is, this is such a large movement of the heart-mind that the sutra really takes into account that you're not going to be able to do this like by Wednesday. You know that this is this is a, an ongoing long process, and um, so I'm interested in how we now take a view like this, which don't worry, will be fleshed out some more tomorrow. How we take an understanding like this and integrate it into our lives as they are. So if we don't get, jump immediately into the state of perfect projectionlessness, what, is it, what would it be like to move more towards there? What would it be like to allow some of the projections to fall, more of the projections to fall, and to come into this um, truer perception of things? How do we do that in our, in our actual lives? So that made me think of the haiku poet Isa, um, because his meditation practice was based very much on the ideas that are in in the Lanka teachings. And um, he took up poetry as his practice toward enlightenment. He thought thought that that the writing of poetry was was um, a possible path to awakening. And so we have not only someone who is... is, mm, whose uh, practice is suffused by these teachings of the Lankavatara, but who is also then living a life and turning it into something, in his case, into poetry. So that was my, my interest in him. Um, when, when, he was, um, when he decided that he was committing his life to making poetry a path to awakening, he changed his name to Isa the Beggar. And Isa means um, one cup of tea, which is... Quite a beautiful name, and um, somehow matching this time when there does seem to be a lot of difficulty uh, amongst us. He was a he was a poet of beautiful melancholy. He had a, by any measure, tremendously sorrowful life that was 
full of um, the deaths, uh, the deaths at very young age of people he loved, including four of his children in infancy, and his mother when he himself was a child, and um, his wife died, and his house burned to the ground. And I mean, it's just this sort of series of he was in, he was in a, a lawsuit where someone was trying to keep his inheritance from him, and he was living in, in really dire poverty all that time. So he had he had a life of, of great struggle, and in that struggle, um, he was always just trying to get as close as he could to what was actually happening and to express that. And part of what, maybe not surprisingly, was happening for him in that life he was living was a, a deep sense of loneliness. So this is this is the kind of poetry he wrote. This is a. a a bit that, that carries such a profound sense of the loneliness he must have felt. It's a haiku that goes like this. Loneliness already planted with each seed in morning glory beds. Loneliness already planted with each seed in morning glory beds. So even in something as you know, beautiful and life-affirming as planting morning, morning glory seeds, already loneliness at the root, at the, at the seed before the root. So, some of Issa's poems have become koans for us and, and are part of our curriculum now. And here you'll find... Um, over here. Yeah. Quotes from the Lankavatara Sutra that that aren't strictly koans, but um, there's there's so much inform the koan way. I thought we could have a really good conversation about them and then take them into Isa's poems. Everyone have one. Get in there. Okay, get in there. The one, the one quote from the Lanka, which is a koan for us, is the first one. Things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. It's so great. <laughs> Things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. And then as a, a little bit of a... Um, uh, 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 an elaboration on that. Here, here's another quote. Mahamadi is the person with whom the Buddha is in dialogue in the sutras, which is a common form in the sutras, these sort of questions and answers. So Mahamadi said to the Buddha, in the light of your wisdom and compassion, the world neither is nor isn't. And then Red Pine, the translator, um, really clarifies the meaning of this and, and makes a point that I think is so important. Redpine says, in light of the Buddha's wisdom, the world doesn't exist. In the light of the Buddha's compassion, it doesn't not exist. And then here's um, the next one is something that, that I hope conveys the great contemporary quality of this sutra. And it mentions the five forms of consciousness, which are the five sensory consciousnesses, um, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. The mind is a hero in a play. The will is the hero's confidant. 
The five forms of consciousness are the cast. Projections are the audience. Ooh. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's so great. I love that the will is the hero's confidant. I'll tell you, you know what you should do? I have an idea. Let's do this. Dramatize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that mysterious projections are the audience. Just you know, let that sort of rattle around and see what happens with that. Um, and then, and then, you know, a little bit more specifically about what happens in the state of projections, and then finally with the state of projectionlessness. So, in the state of projection, assertions and denials don't exist where there is only mind. So, when we're aware of this unity of interior and exterior of the heart, mind, and the world, assertions and denials have no place. But they're a great feature of the state of, of projection. And then this too felt quite contemporary. Once a position is established, a multitude of truths appear. And that was interesting to me because of this kind of, you know, it's, it's so much a given in our contemporary ways of being together in our contemporary discourse that, that you know, that we, you have your truth and I have my truth and we're just going to sort of trade our truths or share them or, you know, that, 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 that we each have a kind of story or a viewpoint and, and it's really important that, um, that they all be heard and acknowledged. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. But... But then, interesting to have this other perspective on it. Once a position is established, once any position is established, a multitude of truths appear. Then suddenly the possibility of all these various positions come into being. And it becomes a matter of this multitude of of truths. On the other hand, one who sees nothing but the heart-mind, nothing but this unity, cannot be touched by words. And what I think um, that means is that words can't substitute for the experience of that unity. That once once you've experienced that non-projection state, um, you can't you can't really be talked out of it. <laughs> you can't you can't really be persuaded by a position. So um, I'm just saying that's what the sutra says, and we can you know we can talk about how that seems to us tomorrow. <coughs> As long as the mind keeps turning, these paths never end. When the mind finally ceases, there is no path or one who walks it. The path that isn't made, this is my only one path. This is my one path. (coughs) And then finally, this kind of um, benediction at the end. Those who abandon these are thereby free of projections. Buddhas come from every land with hands beyond conception and touch their heads as one and lead them into suchness. And there's something there about swapping projections for Buddhas, which doesn't seem like a bad trade to me, you know? Something also about... Um, you know, what are the Buddhas from, from every land? That's everything, right? Every, you know, it's, it's all Buddhas from every land. And so it's as though when, we, when we're free of projections, everything in the world, um, with hands beyond conception, with hands beyond any kind of rational understanding, touch our heads as one and lead us into suchness. Okay, so, so that's the, the quotes from the 
Lankavatara Sutra will take a look at. Are there any questions at the level of meaning, like I just don't get what these words mean, not at the deeper sense of where it's pointing? Mm. Yeah, um, so suchness is Tathagata, and we'll talk some more about that tomorrow, but um, suchness is when we can recognize the, the, the you know, exact, complete nature of each thing, free of any kind of filter or opinion or, or judgment, so that I look at Piper and I just see Piper. You know, the universe is filled with Piper just as she is. That's Tathagata, that's suchness. Okay. Because it's kind of like, like, um, it's not, it's not like the truest thing of Piper. It's the Piperness of Piper. Maybe, but maybe that's essence. I don't know. Would that describe it? Would that describe essence? The Piperness of Piper? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Piperness of Piper is essence. Is that that's then different from the concept of the thing in itself? Can you say how? Because essence, the piperness of piper, is is a, is almost a concept, an idea of piper to extract the piperness of piper. But the thing in itself is is uh, I think um, more uh, um, existing in the world without what you call projection. Um, okay, so so I would I would have made those two th- I would have thought of those two things as the same that that if I'm truly experiencing the piperness of Piper I'm not experiencing my idea of her but I'm experiencing her as she is so I think from this perspective from the perspective of the Lanka and the Collins that's that's what that means yeah it's the truth the dog yeah it's the true fact of the dog right yeah yeah. Okay, any other meaning questions? Where it says those who abandon these? Yeah. Is that referring to the projections? Um, it, it, it refers to a whole big long thing, and I had a question about whether I was going to qualify this, but then I thought, just think of it as everything else that's been talked about so far, that if you abandon all of that, that, that stuff about projection, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then the the um, poetry of Isa. Um, the first is a seemed to me to be, be something about a mood we can have about the world as a whole. A melancholy autumn wind blows through the world. The pompous grass waves as we drift to the moor, drift to the sea. And then moving from that sort of melancholy sense of the world, there's a very particular. Um, experience of suffering memories and thoughts of love pain my breast poetry and prose all forgotten not a word left there is a path to enlightenment but I've lost heart for it today I'm still drowning in samsara and one of the things that's so interesting to me about this is he's right like there's no poetry in this at all right there's I mean it's it's the it's the sort of barest clunkiest language as though in, in that state, which is such a perfect evocation of the state that he's describing, um, 
it's like that. There's, there isn't, um, there isn't room for a metaphor. <laughs> you know, there isn't room for a bit of poetry. Actually, the poem feels like the exhaustion that mm. we were talking about earlier. Mm. That's great. Yeah, yeah. These two are by Issa, too. Yeah, and on the back as well. Um, the next two. He wrote on losing his traveling companion. At sunset this autumn evening, I wrote on a wall, gone on ahead. So these are, you know, various conditions of, of loss and sorrow that he describes so well. And he could also describe happiness pretty well too. So that's the last one too, because that's a, there's also there's also a lot of projective quality in happiness as well as in difficult times. In the cherry blossom shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. And then um, just a line from a poem by Theodore Rethke, in a dark time, the eye begins to see. And what is it that it sees? Then we get to a, um, a very chewy koan. One time when Dungshan was washing his bowls, he saw two crows fighting over a frog. A monastic who also saw this asked, why does it come to that? Dungshan replied, it's only for your benefit, honored one. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Joe? Yeah. Who's the translator of the ESA? Some, some is Sam Hamill, um, and some, I think it might be John Stevens. I can't remember. Any other questions? Yeah. What does love go like? Love go yeah, um, Lanka is like Sri Lanka. It's the, the island, that place. And then Vatara is like Avatar. It's like a, a, an appearance there. So it's, um, you know, the sutra that was spoken during an appearance on Lanka. <laughs> okay. And so, but it was originally in Sanskrit, so... Mm-hmm. Was that the language there in Lanka? Um, or was it just sort of verbally transmitted and sort of held in Sanskrit before it was translated into Chinese? Well, it, it, it wasn't literally spoken in in Sri Lanka, it, but it was placed there sort of dramatically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like like things are placed on Mount Rakuda and all kinds of other places. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. See you tomorrow morning at nine. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at jonesutherlanddharmaworks.org.